Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, and joining me today on the program is Senator John Arch, the Speaker of the Legislature for the state of Nebraska. Senator Arch's most immediate connection with Cedarville is his two sons, Cameron, a 2006 graduate, and Nick, a 2009 graduate. But even more than that, Senator Arch and his wife of 45 years, Brenda, are passionate about serving Jesus, which makes them a perfect fit with Cedarville, and it's my pleasure to have him on the program. Senator Arch earned a bachelor's degree from Grace University and a master's degree from Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, and he also holds an MBA from the University of Nebraska. He is currently the Speaker of the Legislature, and he spent a large part of his professional career in healthcare. We'll talk about all these items today on the program. Let me welcome Senator John Arch to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast. Welcome, Senator. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. It's it's great. And uh, as I was thinking of where to begin today's program, uh, several thoughts went through my mind, including how you first got interested in the in politics. We'll get there in the program, but for now, how did Cedarville? get on the Arch family radar several years ago. Okay. So my wife, uh, Brenda, and I both went to a Bible college for our undergraduate, which is where we met in Omaha, Grace University. And so we both understood the value of a biblical education um, as well as that career education. So we were already in tune with that. And then when our older son, Cameron, started to uh, start considering where to go to school, uh, we identified about five schools. And about that time, Dr. Kent Amstutz, um, who was a friend of ours, his kids went to school with both of our, both of our kids in, in high school. And he worked for Boys Town Hospital, where I was the CEO. Um, he's a developmental pediatrician. So Kent told me about Cedarville. And so we put it on the list and we went out and toured, went to five different schools and uh, came out to Ohio to visit Cedarville. And I personally was very impressed. I was very impressed with the clear doctrinal statement. I really appreciated the minor in Bible. I appreciated daily chapel services. All of those things I thought were really important. And as it turns out, our son Cameron also wanted to go to school there at Cedarville. So it was done. How much influence did you have on, on Cameron and ultimately Nick? Or was it really their decision? Well, it was their decision where to go to school. We were we were pushing very hard for for a Christian school, not a, a state university, and we were ready to make that investment in their lives because we just knew how important it was to our own lives. So, sending a first child a few states away from home can be concerning for parents. So, you did that with Cameron, and then your second son, Nick, comes a few years later. What that tells me is that Cameron had a good experience, and you felt good about Cedarville. But from what you saw and what you heard from Cameron as he'd come back from breaks and live with you guys during the summer, what pleased you most about Cameron's experience at Cedarville that encouraged you to let Nick come to Cedarville? Well, we, we saw uh, what Cameron was going through is what we had hoped, where he was considering his own faith. He was considering his own relationship to, to Christ and was coming to good conclusions. Um, he had good mentors. He had good friends. I mentioned the chapel service because I think that that's like a that's like a whole other class every day. Right. That that you can get more input that isn't part of the curriculum, but 
but definitely part of the experience. And and that was that was personal. And so we were very encouraged to see what was happening with Cameron. So we were hoping that Nick would come here. So my wife is from Pennsylvania. So we were driving to Pennsylvania and was driving by the Cedarville exit when Nick was considering. And and so we we said, well, do you want to stop and take a look at the campus? And sure. Yeah. So we drove off the interstate there, came down to Cedarville. And um, it was middle of the summer. Nobody was around. I mean, nobody. It was <laughs> absolutely empty. But the new um, fitness building, I don't know what you'd call it, but it had a free weight room. Okay. And so we walked into the we walked into this building and Nick walked into the free weight room and said, I can see myself going here. That was it. You know, I mean, we know we know kids pick schools for different reasons, but we thought that was divine. So we said, sold. So he decided to come to Cedarville as well. So we talk at Cedarville, and you may be aware of this, a lot about transformation. From uh, college students spending approximately 1,000 days on campus, which is their four years, uh, do you recall specific aspects in your sons' lives that speaks to this transformational process from their years at Cedarville? What, what tangible evidence could you see? Well, I would say, let me start academically, because both of our kids were good in school, but they weren't pushed. And they were challenged. And I think Cedarville did that. Cameron switched majors several times in that process. That was fine. That's all part of learning who you are. Right. But wherever he went, he was always challenged academically. Spiritually, I would say that it was a, you know, it, it's just a gradual process where, where somebody makes their faith their own, yeah. moving from their parents to them. You, I'm sure you hear it many times. I sure and do. so it was just a it was just a gradual process. There was not an event. There was not one time in either one of their lives. But everything that was spoken at Cedarville affirmed their faith that they already had. And so it deepened. It's like it's like putting the roots down further into the soil so that when the winds blow, it doesn't tip the tree over. And those roots, while planted, were there. But they needed to go deeper, and Cedarville helped put that into their lives. And from research that I did for today's program, talking with Jeff Bestie and a few others who actually know your your sons, uh, it sounds like uh, those roots have gone deep, and they're doing really well uh, spiritually and professionally. Is that true? Yeah, great families. They're both very involved in churches and and sharing of their faith, and 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 as far as career goes, yeah, one. Um, our oldest went on to be an attorney, and he works for Blue Cross Blue Shield in the attorney group there. Yeah. And our youngest works for Carrier, and uh, both have very good careers. Yeah. So let's stay on the area of faith, and let's turn it to to your faith story. When did you When did you meet Jesus? And talk us through uh, that whole uh, transformation in your life. So I was um, I was raised in a Christian home. Both my parents were believers and strong believers. I would say. And so I will tell you that I just honestly don't have a date. I, <laughs> it's like I never knew anything different. I, I grew up believing and uh, stayed believing through adolescence and young adult and, and continued on. So it was just part of life for me that Jesus Christ would be part of my life. And, and so I know my, my dad was encouraging me to go into full-time ministry, which is why I ended up at a Bible college. I thought that's where I was headed in, as a missionary and maybe as a pastor. As it turns out, God had different 
plans for me, but as far as I'm concerned, I think I'm still a full-time Christian. <laughs> right. So full-time minister, um, I think that's what we all are called to be. And, and I yeah. think that regardless of where I ended up in life, that was, that was my calling. Yeah, I think regardless of one's profession, I mean, you're right now a, a politician. I'm in public relations, but we're all uh, here for ministry's sake. Um, right. So um, you just get to right. do it at the state capitol in, in Nebraska. Yeah, uh, it's just different. It is. Yep. So um, again, talking with Jeff Besty in preparation of our conversation, he mentioned some really valid points that uh, both your sons, Cam and Nick, point back to you and Brenda for instilling within them key biblical life-honoring principles at an early age. What were some of those principles that you used to guide your children as they grew from young to high school to college? You know, I, I'm not sure that there were any specific principles. I, I, I would say that what we attempted to do was what, in, you know, Deuteronomy 6-7 God directs Israel to do, just live it. Talk yeah. about talk about it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I don't think there's any time of the day that isn't covered. And I, I think we tried to do that as best we could. That includes being real in your faith, uh, the yeah. good and the bad, and not pretending that, that the Christian life is just a bed of roses because we know it isn't. Mm, no. helping, them, helping them prepare for those times when they too will struggle and, and they see us struggling and a little different than perhaps how previous generations raised their children, which was, you know, don't show when you're struggling, go into another room and, and do the struggling there and then come out and all's good. Anyway, we just lived real, real faith. We attempted to make decisions as a family and, uh, why they should be making those same kind of good decisions. So I, I, I would say it was just a living of faith. Um, it wasn't daily devotions every day. I mean, certainly we went to church every Sunday. Um, we were very active in ministry, but it, it, it happens Monday through Saturday, um, living your faith. And that's a great example for, for all of us to adhere to. I, I, it really came home to me when we were living in St. Louis, um, a couple of decades ago, it seems like. And um, when I'd go to church with those people, it's like we were at church and they were talking about Jesus. I, I've been to other churches where we're talking about the sporting event the night before. And it's re it was refreshing to actually, in whatever we're doing, to be thinking of Jesus and his example and what we should be doing. So I, I, I commend you for that great example that you have demonstrated with your sons and, and obviously your wife. Let's transition a little bit for the podcast and move into the political world. I don't know when this happened, but I know there, there was a time when politics and faith were like vinegar and water, and they don't, they don't blend together. You know, in, As a Christian, we shouldn't be involved in politics. Well, uh, that's changed, and, and uh, you've definitely entered in the political world. So what have you seen that's transpired to reduce the fear of mixing faith with politics? Yeah, good question. I, I'm not sure that it is, it is fear to stay away from politics. I, I think what has happened is that Christians didn't need to be involved in politics. There was a, there was a time where there was a, 
I would describe it as a common worldview. There is a God, but yeah. it may not be necessarily identified as Jesus Christ, but there is a God. There's accountability to that God. There's a higher, there's a higher being. Yeah. And, and so there was a, there was a foundation of worldview that was very common in our society. As a result of that, the policies that, that came off of that worldview were also very common. I mean, worldview will drive your policies. We don't, we, we often look like we're debating policy on the floor of the yeah. legislature. When you peel it back, you'll see that we're debating worldview. We're not, we're not just debating policy. It's policy born of worldview that we're debating. And so, you know, if you have a common worldview, I'm not sure that it's really necessary to be all that involved, but there's a, there's definitely awakening now that's going on where people that weren't previously involved in say policy making versus politics, but policy making now are very involved. And, and I think that's because there is a realization that we're not talking about the same worldview and, and we need to speak. And so I think, I think that has been probably the, the biggest impetus for Christians to become involved in politics. You raise a good point. Uh, I just finished going through a Sunday school class on worldviews, and uh, it's amazing where people can come from in their, in their view. And yeah. as I think about that, and also I see statistics where, what, 25, 30% are, are now proclaiming that they are Christians, which... Back in our day when we were kids, but that was what, 78%, right? Right. And that reflected worldview. I mean, or I should right. say worldview was reflected through that, through right. that statement. And so, so now, you know, we often get the question, well, why can't you compromise? And you say, well, I mean, it's one thing to say, should mm. we do three and a half percent or 3% on our taxes? It's another thing to say, when does life begin? Right. And, and, you know, how do you, how do you compromise on on something that is fundamental to your worldview, shaped by your faith? If you start with there is no God, or you start with there is a God, you will come to very different conclusions. And so I think that, you know, I think that people bemoan the divisiveness in our society, in politics in particular, but some of that is a natural reflection of very divergent views of life. What is wrong with life? How yeah. can we fix life? Very different conclusions. Yeah. So uh, when did you first get interested in politics or actually say, I need to get involved in politics? And what were the driving factors that uh, made you want to run for the uh, Senate uh, in Nebraska? I, you know, I guess I'm a politician. I can't say that I really consider myself a politician because I didn't get into politics the typical way, the party, right? I, okay. I didn't get into it through a, through the party. I, um, I guess my interest my interest was in good governance, um, a government that creates an environment where people can be free with policies that are supported by a biblical worldview, and so that was how I became interested in running for office. But no one party has the corner on that on that subject, and so anyway, I didn't really get into it through the party that traditional way. But I was approached 
by the previous senator who was um, term limited, um, needed to find someone and, and approached me. And it took me about two years, but I really felt that God wanted me to do this. It's, it's amazing how many senators I talk to in the Nebraska legislature that say the same thing. It's a calling. And, and one, one just recently told me, he says, I, you know, I really feel as though God has called me. And when God calls, you don't say no. So that's, that's why a lot of us are there. It, we, we just sense that this is what God wanted us to do. So this may be a difficult question to, to answer, but how do you, I'll, I'll put it this way. How do you hope that the state of Nebraska is better off with guys like John Arch and other senators who are believers than not? Well, I hope that the policies that result are biblical. Okay. In, in other words, you know, if when you go back to worldview and you really take a hard look at what what do you believe about man? What do you believe about the role of government? What do you believe about the nature of the human heart? What do you, you know, all of those things are are shaped by your understanding of scripture. Right. And I I am hopeful that that is a result of having other believers with that common worldview that we would have policies that reflect biblical perspective. Now, my background and somebody else's background, somebody else may come from poverty, somebody else may come from wealth, highly educated, not well-educated. All those things can bring you a different perspective in life, but that common biblical worldview should unite us in what those policies then should be. So you were elected uh, to the Nebraska State Legislature in 2018, and you served that term. Then you got reelected in 22, and now you serve as the Speaker of the Legislature. From your first term, uh, what were some of the wins that you thought uh, you experienced, or what were some of the highlights from that first term? So most of my time was spent in the Health and Human Services Committee. My background was as hospital, as hospital right. administration and, and child welfare, working for Boys Town. Yeah. And so I really understood that. And so I, I was vice chair for my first two years and then chair of the, of the Health and Human Services Committee for, this, for my next two years. And we had some really difficult issues to address regarding children that are involved with the courts, where the families are no longer able to care for them and, and they need direction. The programs in Nebraska weren't meeting those needs. And we spent a lot of time talking about the programs, both foster care as well as some as well as some programs that are institution um, in Nebraska, and uh, I think we made some really big improvements. It's very important that we uh, that we make that attempt to to help those kids who have not had the strong family support background, um, good guidance over their first few years. I think we accomplished a lot in that area. I understand that no state is perfect because all states have imperfect people like ourselves. But my impression of the state of Nebraska is it's a, a safe place. It's a conservative place. Is that the, the state of Nebraska? And are the people, in your opinion, more in tune with biblical principles than maybe you may find in another state, New York, California? First of all, I may be a little biased, right? Sure. I really like I really like Nebraska. Sure. And, and I really like the people. It is a very, I would say, Nebraska is a very common sense kind of state. 
Um, you know, we we have tried to not be like other states in our politics and, and divisiveness. We try to have our legislature be a problem-solving legislature. Right. So we slip. Um, we're, sure. we're influenced by all the national politics as well. But I would say by and large, yeah, Nebraska is a conservative state. And there is certainly, we, we have a very urban and rural divide in, in the state of Nebraska. The rural areas tend to be more conservative and yeah. perhaps even more attendance in church and, and recognition yeah. of that than the urban areas, but, but nonetheless still um, conservative in their views. Yeah, that's uh, similar to Ohio. Uh, we find that the rural places in Ohio are, are very conservative um, and probably more church-going people. So as the speaker of the legislature, are, so just for comparison, so I get in my mind, are you kind of like the Kevin McCarthy of Nebraska? I hope not. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm not I, talking politically, but... <laughs> I And I hope not with the same large issues that he has. Right. But so... Nebraska is unique. We are we are a one house legislature. We do not have two houses. So oh. I'm the speak I'm the speaker of the legislature. We don't have a house and a senate. We call ourselves senators because we represent a district, but we also represent the state as well. And so uh, we have 49 senators representing approximately two million people. And uh, so I'm the speaker of that of that legislature. We are also nonpartisan. When we run for office, we don't have an R, a D, or an I by our name. Um, we we just run as individuals. It is easy enough to find out what our party affiliation is because we're registered voters. But but nonetheless, we don't we're not on the ballot as an R or a D. And so, in our nonpartisan efforts, we the speaker is a nonpartisan speaker. It's the speaker doesn't fill the role as majority leader of the of the majority. Okay. Rather, the speaker is a facilitator of debate. And so I set agendas. I don't determine what bills are introduced or anything like that. I don't appoint committee chairs. It's very different. And so I I facilitate uh, discussions on bills amongst senators. I I do schedule the agenda for debate on the floor. And in uh, two varying degrees of success on any given day, I try to manage as well and encourage good relationships between the senators. Wow, that is refreshing to hear. That I really like the the nonpartisanship. I love that you're just running as people. That that's really refreshing. And, and one thing I learned today, just before we came on to record, for our listeners, the the state of Nebraska is actually smaller in terms of population. In Cuyahoga County in Ohio. That's I probably no, right. I had no idea. I, I guess there's like 1.8 million up in Cuyahoga County, and that's a little bit more than Nebraska. About, uh, about the same. Yeah. About the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, as the Speaker of the Legislature, and I know faith is really important to you. How, how intentional are you to intersect your faith with your role as a state senator and the Speaker of the Legislature? So, yeah. Well, that's a really good question. I, I see my faith as who I am, yeah. not as necessarily what I believe. Now, my faith definitely affects the policies that I support. I mean, that's to be expected. But I think more than that, it or at least equally as important as that, it affects how I treat others in the legislature, how I treat other senators, how I treat staff. Christ told us to to love our enemies. And and right. that's really hard. 
when when they are enemies and they are out to hurt you. Um, but that's what we're called to do. We're called to love our enemies. Be wise. Don't don't be naive. But but it isn't. You you don't have to be. You don't have to be ugly personally to speak truth. Right. And and you you can truth will offend all on its own. You don't have to be offensive yourself. And so my desire is to show love as Christ would love uh, all the senators in spite of our deep divisions and respect them as human beings that Christ came and died for. That's how I think my faith, I would hope that my faith would affect how I act in the legislature as much as what policies I will support. So did that kindness, that uh, that attitude of loving each other, even though you're, they're your enemies at times, did that play a role in you actually becoming the speaker of the legislature? Or how did how did this process come up? Did they did someone ask you to run for this the speaker position? Or yeah, it it wasn't something that I sought. It wasn't something that I felt I needed personally. Um, I felt a sense of duty in accepting that. I I ran uncontested as speaker. Um, I was unanimously elected as speaker. Okay. I don't know that I will be unanimously elected the next time as speaker because <laughs> you have to make some decisions that are aren't popular and pretty much everybody doesn't like you by the end of that. Right. Um, but yeah, I um, well, I hope so. I hope that it influenced some because I have always tried to be fair and reasonable and understand the policies and not just react. Well, of course, we're against that or of course, we're for that. I've always tried to do that. And so I, I hope that 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 influenced some votes. Yeah, but your your election to the speaker position was done in the Senate. It wasn't the, the population of Nebraska didn't vote for you. It was no, the, that's correct. The, okay. the the other legislators, the senators, um, vote for the speaker. So let's go back to your your career in healthcare. You spent many many years at Boystown National Research Hospital and clinics. How did your roles with that organization? prepare you for your role today? Yeah. There's nothing like the medical world to prepare you for politics. Well, almost as good as church. <laughs> churches churches could prepare you for politics too. Yeah. But it it really is, it's very similar because there is, um, there's a group in our case of 49 uh, who are well-educated, very opinionated, independent thinking and voting, and you have no positional power over them. You are you are strictly um, with your personal influence and personal perspective. You can influence it, but you still need to get them moving. So, physicians, nurses, PhD researchers, all very well educated, very independent thinking, and uh, that was the that was the challenge that I had as CEO of the hospital, and it it prepared me well. So as you continue your role in the state Senate. I know that uh, Nebraska is known as the Cornhusker Husk, Corn state. I know it's known as the tree planter state. Uh, Arbor Day was created in your state. What brings you greatest hope about the state of Nebraska as you look at it right now with the, all the ups and downs of the national uh, landscape? I think, I, I think that it's the people. I don't mean that glibly at all. I think that we have a very unique uh, population. They're hardworking, 
They're very involved in they're very involved in their employment. They want better lives for their children. They want good education. They want all of those things. And as I mentioned previously, there's a there's a significant population that is waking up, and they and they are speaking now. Sometimes in their first waking up, they come out with great anger and great vitriol and. But I think that they are getting their head into the polit into the policies, and and I think that they will have a good influence in the future, and and that is what gives me the greatest hope. Yeah, that's great to hear. I only have time for a couple more questions, and uh, so if my math is right, you probably have about three more years uh, to serve as in your current role in the Senate. But I'm wondering, do you have aspirations for higher office? Maybe the governor of Nebraska or a U.S. congressman. I think you do a great job either way. Is this is this a time I should announce? Yeah, this is would be great. A, I've never had anyone <laughs> announce on my on the Cityville Stories podcast, so feel free to right. uh, breaking news right. here. No, no, honestly, I do not. I don't. I don't have any aspirations for higher office. I'll I'll listen to God, but He hasn't placed that desire in my heart right now. Well, He He has three more years to to prepare you for that. But, okay. uh, but you know, just spending time with you today, it's been refreshing, and it's. I'll call you a politician in the best sense of the word, but it's great to talk to a politician who's just real. And and I'm looking at you through Zoom, and I, I can just mm-hmm. tell you're just authentic, and it's re- really refreshing. So uh, thank you thank for you. sharing that. Yeah. So my last question. So whenever you complete your political career, how would you like to be remembered by the people you serve, by by the colleagues you work with, and by the residents of the state of Nebraska? You know, that question, that's a really good question. I, you know, the, the state of Nebraska pays senators $12,000 a year. And uh, so you're not in it for the money. And ego disappears a long time ago <laughs> when, when you get all the hate email and all the calls. And everybody doesn't think you're wonderful. I want to be remembered as a true public servant. That, that's what I want to be remembered. And I hope it'll be re- viewed as a reflection of Jesus Christ, who was yeah. a true public servant. So uh, let me add one more question. So you're you're in the spotlight every day with what you do. People throughout the state know you. And you you mentioned you get uh, critical mail. How does that impact Brenda, your wife? Because I'm, I, I she has to be the greatest supporter for you. So how does it how does it impact her? I would say that it's harder on spouses uh, than it is on the individuals elected. Um, I think the individuals elected maybe know that it's just part of what comes. And you never really get used to it, but but you do adjust to it. And, you know, for the politician, for the person elected, you say, I'm just going to do what I think is right. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what you're left with. Do that's what right. you think is right. The spouse can't do that. The spouse doesn't, the spouse is relatively powerless in in doing what is right. We certainly talk about some some issues when I come home, that type of thing, but she can't punch the button and vote. And so that powerlessness is something that that I think is real in the in the spouse of, of of an elected official. And so we just talk about it a lot. And she, you know, she obviously knows if I'm upset over something or I'm concerned about something, um, but she doesn't have to live that life with me. Yeah. Well, our time is up. I, I really want to thank you for being candid with with us today. And for all of those in Nebraska listening to us today, I encourage you to pray for Senator John Arch and his family. 
I, I can tell you he's doing a great job for you. And, uh, and for everyone else, uh, if, you, if you think about it, pray for all our politicians because we're commanded to do so. And uh, they're in the front lines of a lot of uh, tough business. So for today, Senator Arch, thank you for joining me this week on the Cedarville Stories podcast. It was great to be Thanks. with you. Thanks. Been a real pleasure. I want to thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory. God's glory.